Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jared Hill. And I am Travel Anderson. Jesse's out this week, and the Max Fun Podcast Fanti is taking over. Coming up next, Travel, you've got to guess who you're talking to. Yes, I spoke to Katori Hall, who is a well-revered playwright who's transitioning into television now with a adaptation of her play, P-Valley. The name of the play is a the, the P stands for a word we can't say on NPR, but she's known for a lot of her plays, in particular, The Mount. Top. It won the Laurence Olivier Award for Best New Play, and it reimagines Martin Luther King's Last Night on Earth at the Lorraine Motel. And here in Pea Valley, have you had a chance to see it yet, Jared? I haven't gotten to check it out yet, no. Okay, so let me tell you, this is the new show that everyone needs to be paying attention to. It is set in a fictional southern town in the Mississippi Delta, and it's a show about sex workers and strippers and my favorite character by the name of Uncle Clifford. She is a non-binary individual who owns the strip club called The Pink. That's P-Y-N-K. I got a chance to talk about a little bit of that character with Katori. We're going to throw to a clip right now. In this clip, Clifford gets a visit in her office from the queen bee of the club, a dancer who goes by the name of Mercedes, played by Brandy Evans. She is the most popular dancer in the club, but now it's time for her to retire. Mercedes' last dance. Hmm. After seven years, huh? It took you long enough. Well, my 401k I need a spinning. Size, 25. Retirement age for a stripper nowadays, so. Who gonna take over your Sunday night set? I don't know. I come into the month, no more Mercedes Sundays for me. You crying? Heffa, ain't nobody crying over your baby neck smelling that. What you gonna do when you leave? What OG do? Count on money. Welcome to Bullseye, Katori Hall. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. So there's so much to talk about when it comes to P Valley. <laughs> Too much. I it, I really enjoyed the show, but the series is based on a play of yours. How did you first come to the idea of exploring this world of, of strippers um, in this fictional town? Sure. So you know, I'm a Memphis girl through and through. Very much about my southern roots, and what's so. <laughs> Interesting is that a lot of people don't know just how popular strip clubs are down south. Like I actually grew up sneaking into strip clubs, like with my sister, <laughs> and you know, frequenting these places where you run into family members, you run into friends. I done had all kinds of celebrations at the club, like whether it's your birthday, a bachelorette party, a bachelor party. There's even been a baby shower that was there at the strip club. You know, it's definitely a space where a lot of cultural collisions happen. And when you go inside and I was always just, you know, inspired by what I would see. Like most people think, oh, it's just about taking off clothes. But like these women, when they're up on that stage, up on that pole, they're sheroes. They are doing some of the most athletic things I have ever seen in my life. And so having been exposed to the environment socially, 
I kind of kept it always in the back of my mind. And so, you know, fast forward to when I was like in my twenties in New York city and I decided I was going to start taking pole dancing classes because I had been so impressed by the, the Cirque du Soleil esque um, tricks that these women, you know, were doing up on the pole uh, in those mm-hmm. places that I, I grew up around. And so I remember going to that class and child I almost fell out because I got so nauseated I could not pull my body weight up on the on that pole I was sliding down I thought oh I'm supposed to put oil on my legs so that I can you know get up there no you ain't supposed to put no oil on your legs you're supposed to you know put chalk on your legs and so that was the day when I realized that this art this craft is hard. It requires training. It requires you to be an expert. And so from that moment of trying to physically try it myself, that was the entry point for me because I really wanted to showcase and demonstrate to the people like this is a craft. Um, So I started this kind of research phase where for six years, I went to like 40 something strip clubs, interviewed just as many women and really cultivated a very strong personal relationships with these women. In fact, I celebrated my 30th birthday in the women's locker room in Sin City in the Bronx because, you know, um, there's a there's a sisterhood that is uh, behind stage. And so all of that culminated into a play uh, called Valley that was produced in 2015 at Mixed Blood Theater in Minneapolis. And when I saw that play on stage, I very quickly realized that it was not a play, that it was a TV (laughs) show, because it has so much going on. Even the reviewers, they were like, we love this this play, but whoo child, it got a lot going on. (laughs) It was sprawling. The characters had legs, like literally and figuratively for days. And so I wanted to switch mediums and and I very quickly pivoted to um, the the TV space. And so I ended up pitching it and stars bought the idea. And so for four years, I developed the series version of the story. And it was an amazing experience because um, you, you learn a lot about uh, yourself uh, when it comes to switching from playwright to, you know, TV creator, showrunner. It requires you um, to be a much more collaborative person. But I'm so yeah. blessed that I had that opportunity. And, and so it's really been an a, a true blue odyssey. It's taken me 10 years to bring um, this story to the masses. And, it, you know, it, it's all started from me just being that that Southern gal sneaking into strip clubs down in Memphis. Could you talk to us a little bit about the, the process of research and having conversations with some of these women? Um, how did they respond to your interest in telling some of their stories? So you would think that some random woman walking up into a strip club saying hey can you tell me about your life like what's your real name you'd think that I would like be very quickly shown the door right but I think because no one ever came in asking them who they were and why they did what they did um, and speaking to them like they were human beings versus objects there was a very quick 
you know, response. Like, girl, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, then you're like, let's sit down at the bar, you know, to the point where there was a moment where the manager came by. I was like, uh, you need to be twerking. Like, why are you sitting down, you know, talking to this woman? Um, like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We working, we working, you know. Um, it it and I think it it had a lot to do with me just coming inside of that space and seeing them and seeing that they were just like me and talking to them like they had a life and that they weren't just a pair of breasts and and a big bottom i very quickly moved from the stage to backstage uh and into the locker room because of the fact that i was always very open about why i was doing this in terms of being able to to tell a story that truly came from a place of empathy and wanting them to have agency in in the storytelling as well it's like if you can give me your truth i promise that i will take care of that like the baby that it is it is so precious truth is so precious and i promise to be inspired by that so that i can use fiction in order to tell um, more deeper truths and i really felt Every dancer that I spoke to really got quickly on board with that goal because they themselves have felt the hand of subjugation, felt the hand of being misrepresented, all the shame that a lot of them carry because of the shaming that our society does to women who dance for a living. Um, And so they really were just as invested, if not more invested than me when it came to um, sharing the true stories about the, the dance world. I love that journey you just painted for us. And I want to particularly zero in on something you said earlier about how in the South, the strip club is a very like integral location in a lot of our communities. Um, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, but I came of age. uh, I went to school in in Atlanta. Shout out to Magic Mm. City. Um, Yes, Magic. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the strip club is such an integral part of so many of these particular communities. But at the same time, I also feel like strippers and sex workers more broadly are kind of underappreciated, right? People don't Mm -hmm. look at what they do as art or as athleticism when it really does take, you know, you're engaging the entire body when you are, you know, on, on that pole. I'm wondering for you, where does the show for you fit into this broader conversation about, you know, how we look at and treat sex workers and, and strippers? So for me, this is a love letter. It's definitely coming from a a place of empathy because we know that these women have been dehumanized. You know, the the world uh, of stripping has been stigmatized. And and for the fact that we live in this patriarchal society where all women (laughs) have to kind of struggle for respect, but, you know, more so with, you know, the broader term we use sex workers and specifically strippers, um, this whole idea of like taking your clothes off for money is, is just something that we don't want to embrace as this kind of, you know, a society that I would say participates in respectability politics. Mm-hmm. Um, we always want our, our women, particularly black women, um, to, to be shown in a specific way. And, you know, for me, I want to say to hell with that. I, having been a woman who grew up loving women and thinking that all women's lives matter, I really wanted to show that, you know, these women are human. Um, 
unfortunately, you know, there there are choices that not all of us um, have access to. Not everyone grows up with wealth. Not everyone grows up with everything being given to them. And so a lot of these women are dealing with economical situations where the only choice is to participate in this exploitative space. And so this definitely is not a glamorization uh, project in in terms of looking at this world. This is a humanization um, project just because I, I know that there's this long history of hypersexualized images that all women are pushing against. And I just really want audiences to understand and embrace the humanity of these women. You mentioned that when you first saw um, the play stage that like you immediately knew that it needed to be on television. What has translating it to TV allowed you to do that perhaps you couldn't do on stage? So I'm going to tell you something. It's real hard to be up on a pole and say a monologue. (laughs) (laughs) I remember just, you know, we would go into rehearsal and we had a group of women who actually had a lot of pole dancing experience under their belt. I remember the young woman named Megan Rippey who who played Gidget. She had been pole dancing for almost, I would say, like six years at that point, even before 2015. And so to see this woman who had trained as an actress, you know, while holding her body weight up on that pole, sometimes with one hand and then having to do like a ream of a monologue was just um it, it was a learning experience because thank god that she was able to 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 do it for the most part but um i really wanted to use the medium of television to really kind of lay out just the the majestic quality of exotic dancing um truly should be an olympic sport sport. Um, and so with the TV medium, we were really able to um, elevate it even more. We were able to use, you know, not, not only our actresses who uh, had a long time training so that they could do some of the tricks, but we ended up getting these these body doubles who, mm-hmm. you know, took us to another level. And so, you know, it's the magic of television where you can be up on the pole, the camera like was like, but you know, in the eyes of the dancers. And so I felt as though the choreography that these women um, learned really allowed us to see just how hard this particular craft is. And so that was probably like, you know, the the first thing that the the TV version of the show really underscores. Um, and then in terms of just thinking about the story, you know, the fact that not only is this a, a show about the women, but the the men uh, who come into this space, you know, some of them are broken. Some of them are are dealing with their own issues. And this becomes like this space where they can kind of escape into. And so the fact that we had uh, a longer space to really delve in, into these people's lives and, and uh, you know, their characters changed. I remember Uncle Clifford started off as a trans character. And so over time, um, we shifted Uncle Clifford in into the non-binary space just because mm-hmm. we really wanted that character to feel very equally masculine and feminine and also you know I don't I don't get a chance to see gender fluid people 
on screen uh, very often. And I felt like this particular choice really allowed for that representation to happen in the premium cable space in the way that I had never seen before. Um, in terms of just, you know, the story, we ended up uh, weaving in mystery. We were able to just really pull it out like Laffy Taffy. So that episode after episode, you're coming back week after week, seeing how these characters transform. You know, with the play version, you only get what, two and a half hours, in my case, three hours of, of a too long play, um, you know, in, in terms of the, the laboratory uh, that you're, you're putting in front of people. But, you know, this, the, the fact that we're going to hopefully have years to tell the story of this little strip club that, that could, um, it's just an amazing blessing because there's, there's so many stories to tell. Even more with Katori Hall right after the break. Don't go anywhere. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. A Minneapolis business owner's daughter is called out publicly for racist, anti-Black tweets. Fighting to save his business and trying to make amends, he calls on a prominent Black Muslim leader for help. He's an Arab Muslim. And I said, Brother Makram, I'm here to learn. Tell me what to do. To hear what happens next, listen to Code Switch from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Travel Anderson. And I'm Jared Hill. We're covering for Jesse this week. Right now, we're listening to my interview with Katori Hall, the award-winning playwright of The Mountaintop, who's created this new star show, Pea Valley, based on a play of hers. It's a drama set in a Mississippi strip club with a host of great characters like Uncle Clifford, the gender nonconforming owner who uses she, her pronouns. It's airing right now. Let's get back to the conversation. I feel like, you know, P-Valley, it's it's a story about survival, about morality. There's some greed in there, some trauma. Um, but for me, I think the, the thing that, that shines the most is this idea of, like, the particular brand of, like, Black femininity that is explored mm. in the show. Um, and particularly the ways it manifests across genders, right? So you mentioned Uncle Cliff um, as a character who is non-binary. Um, and to your point, as someone who is also non-binary, I love of seeing mm-hmm. someone who looks and, and shows up in the world like me on TV. Uh, and beyond that, a character who's as much a protagonist as the cis folks in the story, right? They're not just the, the sassy best friend or in the periphery. Could you talk mm-hmm. to me a little bit more about um, centering Uncle Cliff's story as well as the other women's stories? Yeah, you know, I always joke about uh, this to my to my friends and even to the writers. I'm like, I kind of made a show about strippers so that I could have this uh, protagonist called Uncle Clifford <laughs> in the mix. Like, I feel as though it's just as much about them as it is about Uncle Clifford. You know, starting off, you know, Uncle Clifford is a mixture of so many of my living ancestors. I always say that Uncle Clifford is inspired by my mom, my dad, and my real Uncle Clifford. You know, no, none of them is non-binary, but just ha- being able to, within one person, mm-hmm. um, have the spectrum of expression and, and this whole idea of what is masculine, what is feminine, and how we all kind of have that within ourselves. But Uncle Clifford just has this 
interesting way of being all of that at once. And I really mm. wanted to to show people the power in embracing all sides of yourself. And, you know, I just feel as though with this character that not that many people um, have seen, I, I feel as though this is a moment to normalize people that are in my reality and just in the world. And so um, it's been this great gift to cultivate this character and work with the writers on how we would center um, her transformation. It's very What's very interesting about Uncle Clifford is that even though Uncle Clifford um, is definitely gender fluid, Uncle Clifford embraces the pronoun of she, um, but still also will never let go of the moniker Uncle Clifford. Those choices in itself basically represent and articulate to an audience how Uncle Clifford is always going to be embracing the feminine and masculine in, in the way she walks in the world. In terms of the storyline around Uncle Clifford, you know, we see that Uncle Clifford has inherited this club from her grandmother and that this club used to be a juke joint and that she's trying to figure out a way to sustain herself. And just like Mm -hmm. so many people who are within the LGBTQ community, this thing of your identity, particularly down South, is a battleground. It's political. And so I always feel like Uncle Clifford is one of the more revolutionary characters that we have because despite this patriarchal sex racist, racist, homophobic space that she grew up in, she's demanding that people accept her for who she is. And she does not shun away from the mirror. It's She's always just, just herself. And you just got to take Uncle Clifford as Uncle Clifford is. That watching this character kind of walk in the world and be embraced by the other characters, to me, is also a kind of revolutionary thing. One of my favorite scenes, particularly in episode two is or I mean just you know I would say in all the episodes you know she has a worker uh named Big L who you know looks very you know hyper masculine doesn't (laughs) seem like he would be chilling in tight quarters you know the office with Uncle Clifford but yet there's this sense of great respect and and the fact that even Big L chooses to talk about Uncle Clifford in the pronouns that she has chosen for herself to me is a is a level of respect. And the show is about the people who have been misrepresented, who have been cast aside by society, whether it's sex workers or people who um, are trans or non-binary. We, we want to be able to very clearly say to the world that our society is complicated and there's diversity within diversity and we mm-hmm. all c- can live in a place in harmony if we were given that opportunity. So shows like this, I think, just really give audiences an idea as to how human different people are and it puts you in the living room with them. It, it brings these people inside of your living room, um, which I think is a, a very privileged position to be in, particularly because a lot of people don't get an opportunity to engage with folks like this. Yeah, and I think to, to one of your points, one of my favorite things about Uncle Clifford is that, you know, Uncle Clifford is accepted by everyone in the community as she is, and they... Uh, uh, quote unquote, allow her to move through the world in the ways that she wishes. Um, And the fact that 
Uncle Clifford isn't like, you know, a young spring chicken, I think helps illustrate <laughs> this idea. Not to say Uncle Clifford's old. 38, but, 38. 38 ain't know, old. It, it ain't old, Jamel. It ain't old. <laughs> <laughs> but w- what I'm saying is, you know, I feel like so often when we talk about LGBTQ people, particularly trans folks and non-binary folks, oftentimes mm-hmm. it's seen as if we are like this new trend, as if we just like dropped out of the sky a few years ago. Oh, no. When, uh-uh. you know... Folks like us, right, have existed in these communities, even in some communities, right, where it hasn't necessarily been the easiest for those of us LGBTQ, but we've yep. always been your business owners and your neighbors and, mm-hmm. and everyone like that. That's one of the things that I love uh, about Uncle Clifford. As we move on, I want to play another clip from P-Valley. Here, we're going to be introduced to Autumn, played by Elorica Johnson, who's keeping a few secrets to herself. In this clip, Autumn is trying to get inside of the pink but she's having some trouble getting past a flirtatious bouncer. Oh, that'd be 30, little mama. But that gentleman just paid 20. Yeah, well, that how much it costs for a pretty like you. Is that how you give compliments around these hair parts? That's just the politicking of the paint. Uncle Clifford rules. No funny money, no bullets, and no more chips. No chips? Look, take this 20 and my email. Your email? It's going to be like that. (laughs) One of the things (laughs) that I love the most about that scene and the entire series are the accents and the vernacular. As someone from Charleston, South Carolina, like I said, uh, Charleston is a place where, like, the Black community has a very specific accent, a very specific way of speaking. Um, And so I have Uh to say, it felt a little bit at home for me to hear this these types of accents, these types of vernacular employed throughout the Uh entire show. Talk to me about that decision to to lean into that. Absolutely. So anytime you go to a Katori Hall show, you're going to get that Katori Hall experience. And what I mean by that (laughs) is, you know, I am a woman who honors her blackness and honors those Southern roots, basically in everything that I do. You know, growing up, I often, I was the quote unquote only one in a lot of spaces, you know, not always the only woman, but oftentimes the only black person. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, going to class and, and being told that people didn't understand me. And so you, you learn how in acting school, I remember very specifically my, my, my vocal instructor working very hard with me to change the way I said pen. I'm like, yeah, you know, I need to, you know, I need a pen, like a pen, a pen to pin your, your, your dress. I'm like, not a pen to write with. Um, and so you, you grow up feeling ashamed about this thing that makes you, you like mm. our, our tongue, our way of communicating. It is beautiful. The African-American vernacular oftentimes comes under fire as as seeming dumb or or you know like oh they speak in broken english and it's like no we speak in english we just speak in it in a flyer way than you are so <laughs> i had those experiences of 
you know, feeling ashamed as to how I, I spoke. And so when it came to having this opportunity to use linguistics to world build this show, I, I really had to embrace my roots and I had to show that this is a, a, a music, um, this language that we created, you know, this, this fusion of dialect and accent and, and, and lingo. Um, it, it's a, it's a beautiful kind of oral gumbo that we're making. And I just hope that, you know, week after week, people come to, to feast upon this amazing buffet of new words and new phrases that we are serving up. Like, everybody be like, what is Skrilla? And I'm going to be talking about <laughs> Skrilla all the time. You know, that's a word that I grew up saying in Memphis. Like, I've been saying Skrilla ever since I was 13 years old. And so, you know, little moments like that, these nods to a very very kind of local lingua franca is is what makes uh, uh, P Valley so special. You know, I, I remember sitting down with another press person. They were like, oh my God, I had to watch the show four times. And I was oh, like, Lord. oh, you loved it? And he was like, no, it's because <laughs> like, I love it, but I also didn't understand what the hell people were saying sometimes. And so it demands that you stop what you're doing. You can't be looking at the computer or looking at Instagram <laughs> when you're watching this show because there is an, an entirely new language that is being dropped into your ear. So yeah, I I really am happy that stars uh, embraced this this very strong choice. You know, I think of a show like The Wire, and I, I remember the first mm-hmm. time that Snoop came in. We the, you know the introduction of Snoop as a character, and I was just like, what did she just say? I don't know what she just said. <laughs> But she was serving up that be more that's, you know, that sound that was very specific to to that community. And there are other examples of TV shows that have really put new slang and highlighted all the diverse ways in 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 which we as Americans speak. Um, and so I was just um, with stars. They, they really there was a conversation once about like, do, should we use subtitles? And I was like. Uh-uh-uh, because that would be racist. <laughs> These Black people are speaking English. Like I said, it's just a little bit more flyer than your English. And there's nothing wrong, right, with demanding your attention, right? Absolutely in, in terms not. of these particular types of Black stories being put on screen. Absolutely not. You know, we are focusing on a very specific corner of of the world and in a very specific community that, you know, it's, it's all these isms clashing, you know, there's, there's racism, there's classism and there's sexism. There's all of it, you know, stirring this pot and, you know, language is this political statement in the midst of all of that. You know, we are, we are a stolen people. Our, our mother tongues were snatched away from us. And so I think it's a form of resilience, Mm. um, that we have had and that we've been able to carry a sense of Africanness in the way that we, we, we communicate with each other. And the fact that, you know, sometimes we don't even need a word. We just need a look. We just need a look, <laughs> you know, sucker the teeth. We, we, we just need to a, a particular sound um, that just goes to show you just how, you know, we, 
the way we speak is music. Um, and that's why rap came from, from, you know, black and brown folk. So it's been incredible to, to work with the team and to make sure that the actors understood everything that, that was being said. And, you know, there was dialect coaches that were employed. They really worked very hard on, you know, hitting the bullseye in terms of the authenticity of this world. I love that. I think through the through the accents and the vernacular, that's one of the ways that um, I get a sense of authenticity to the show. Um, and mm-hmm. in addition to that, there's also some of the you know the 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 sorted parts of our community that we don't really talk about that you yeah. all are addressing head on. The first one I feel like being colorism um, and the ways mm. in which colorism. Um, not only manifests itself in kind of our everyday lives, but specifically within this world where you have one stripper mm-hmm. who's fairly new and she's light skinned and she's she's yep. treated in a particular way, even compared to, you know, our Queen B Mercedes. Yeah. You know, right, who is who is a darker skinned black woman and has the, you know, she's the most acrobatic out of everyone and really puts on the show. Could you talk to me about like were, were you intentional about making sure to to build that into the characters? We were incredibly intentional uh in regards to talking about colorism because it it affects us till this day like mm-hmm. i growing up you know i remember i'd be walking through the mall with my with my girls and i you you can kind of like keep a tally like i think i'm cute i think i'm cute you know <laughs> i got a nice i got a nice face a nice waist and it was so interesting to see all of my my you know more fair skinned uh, friends would always get the the looks or, or you know get get a little more you know invitations and and mm-hmm. and they'd be like what your number is is there was a lot of that and I'm just like it's not because I'm less attractive it's just that everyone has kind of imbibed this eurocentric ideal of beauty uh, within their culture like it's not just you know within the african-american culture it's also you know um the indian companies um Mm -hmm. you know they they are just recently kind of looking at all these skin lighteners and so yes you know across the board you know globally we're always been we've always been reaching towards this eurocentric ideal um and so you know particularly in in the strip club i have seen and there's been lots of conversations there's even been um, strikes, particularly up north where dancers got together and they started striking against the clubs because the, the black women were leaving with less money and it had everything to do with the fact that these men were coming in and they were pu- putting their money towards uh, the, the women who were, as they, you know, as they call light brights. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an unfortunate and pervasive issue within our community. And I really felt like the, you know, this using the strip club as a way to, to, to really kind of lay it out was, was one of the ways as to which we, we show that, you know, this show is not just about dancing per se. It's, it's about so many different things. It's about all the isms that affect us within the society. And so to have Mercedes from jump be like, all she did was lay up there looking light. And then Uncle Cliff was like, well, that's what yellow girls do. Like they don't have to work as hard because of the privilege of, of, of lighter skin. There's white skin privilege and there's light skin privilege. And, you know, as we know, the 
the closer you are to whiteness, um, there the, the more privileges you have. Um, what's interesting is I think Autumn is is well aware of that privilege, and she's mm-hmm. well aware of of the the gaze that male gaze and how she can kind of use it to her advantage. And we see her kind of like lean in and lean into that and and accept that privilege. But it is interesting to to see a character who kind of knows how the game is being played because she's 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 one smart cook. And and so I really did want to to be um, intentional uh, about discussing, you know, the the emotional impact of colorism on our society and and specifically Black women. You know, Miss Mississippi, as beautiful as she is, right? She looks in that mirror and she craves, you know, a lighter version of herself. We talked to the the actress Shannon Thornton who plays her about those insecurities and and you know, she herself can kind of speak to being this beautiful chocolate brown skin woman and and still because of uh, the, the society and because that because of that focus on uh, this Eurocentric ideal um, has felt less than her her lighter uh, counterparts and and so I thought the strip club space was the kind of perfect place to really show how these characters push up against that and, and try to to find a mirror that really feels loving um, within that space. What's really cool is that you have Uncle Clifford who I think uh, who, who ends up saying it. I think Mercedes. Mercedes calls calls Uncle Clifford a midnight blue, and then Uncle <laughs> Clifford just you know shoot her the side eye and like and you know like I'm proud of my midnight blueness. So I think <laughs> it is beautiful, like in implicit ways we're showing how you know there are people who are darker skinned who take pride in in their appearance. But I also think you know that's because there's a mixture of male privilege that Uncle Clifford has access to, which makes it okay. Because uh, you know there was a time when everybody was like, ooh the light-skinned brothers is out the chocolate boys they always in with you know <laughs> with your from your westless knives to your idris elbas you know color plays uh, plays differently depending on how it is tied to um your your sexual identity so it's been an amazing playground to talk about an issue that has been it's so taboo sometimes within mm-hmm. within our culture, but I think you know now it, it's it's very it's 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 good to have those kind of open and honest, transparent conversations about the issue of colorism. And you know, thank God we have like a characters who can kind of speak to that. Yeah, as we begin to wrap up, I'm interested particularly in how you all approach this show um, in terms of bringing kind of a woman's gaze to these stories about, you know, Black women, queer men mm-hmm. in this 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 fictional town. Um, I know that all of the directors for each of the episodes of the first season are women. Yep. What was the importance of you, uh, f- what was the importance for you to, to make that decision in terms of who's going to be controlling the gaze of the camera. Absolutely. You know, the the female gaze was the uber goal of this show. We knew that we were stepping into extremely tricky territory with doing a show that's centered on the strip club world because, you know, as a Black woman, I've inherited this this huge box of hypersexualized images about myself. And mm-hmm. if I was going to do a strip club show, I would be running the risk of filling that box with more images, like perpetuating this this stereotype of Black women as Jezebels instead of these, you know, complicated human beings. 
I was well aware and and that's why I I felt so much responsibility in making sure that we did not add to that box, but that we actually kind of, you know, struck out on our own and created this space where we could be honest about this very vulnerable group of women, Black women, um, who are, are, are dancers. And so, you know, when it came to conversations with who we were going to give the privilege of helming these episodes, you know, we always came back to women because these particular female directors had already been investigating the female gaze in their previous work. And and Mm -hmm. when they came to the table during the interviews, they had ideas as to how we were going to make sure that even beyond the writing. Uh, We were going to make sure that this wasn't about leaning into gratuitous nudity or making, you know, uh, men the center of the story. Like even with the camera work, we have made sure that people feel as though they're stepping into the high heeled platforms of, of our female characters. You know, for example, you know, we talked a lot about instead of focusing on how the women's bodies looked, we were going to focus on what the women's bodies could do. And that's mm. why dance um, is, is is so beautifully visually articulated um, in the piece. You, you'll you notice that we there's not a lot of like boob shots <laughs> in our mm-hmm. show. Like we we show that, you know, women are naked, that, that that's part of their job. That is the, the requirement to work in this space. But it, it's about the athleticism and, and focusing on movement and motion and instead of just uh, breasts and bottom we talked a lot about embedding the camera and you know inside of the experience of the women um the fact that there's a lot of kind of pov shots uh where you really get the woman's perspective i love that moment when we're with autumn and she's walking through the club you know that first night right behind mercedes and you see you know her eye roving across the crowd taking that all in you know from the male perspective, it would just be like, you know, let me throw some money. Like that's an object on stage versus a real sentient human being who's going through this, this first time experience and, and is in awe. Those particular choices were so helpful in making sure that people understood that this is from um, the eyes of these women and there's no judgment placed on how they're experiencing things or or what they're going through. There's just kind of this very honest approach to how they walk in the world. And so I think that that went miles to making sure that the show didn't feel you know, just exploitative. Like we were already telling a story about an exploitative space, but you know, when you place the camera in the eyes of your female characters, you get a sense of how this exploitative space can actually also be a space for liberation for a lot of women. In episode two, I remember uh, we had a moment where we ended up reshooting a scene just because we felt like, you know, the nudity was getting in the way of us, you know, taking in uh, a particular conversation. Um, It was actually this lap dance that Autumn was doing for, it was Andre and, and, and the character Corbin, you know, they're going over this business deal and, you know, she's overhearing it and, you know, 
when we initially shot it, we just shot mm-hmm. it as a one And so all we saw was just this female body, you know, laying on the laps of these men. So when we got a chance to reshoot it, we made sure that we weren't going to do a one that we were always going to be kind of like in on her face and in on her listening to the conversation. Cause that was the story. That was mm-hmm. a story point that we need to get across. And so I was grateful that we kind of went through a moment of a failure where, you know, we were like, okay, I always call that that episode gate because <laughs> we were just like, uh-uh, you know, it, it, it can't be about uh, the body. It got to be about the story. And so it it was a, a defining moment in terms of how we were going to move forward and always make sure that we were placing story and character development before we were kind of looking at the nudity and looking at the women's bodies. And for the the folks who aren't uh, as familiar with your work prior to Pea Valley, I just want to run down a few of the things on the extensive, well-received, you know, well-lauded <laughs> resume that you have. Um, you were the book writer, <laughs> book writer and co-producer of <laughs> Tina, the Tina Turner musical, um, Hurt Village, which is your play about a young rapper, her mother and grandmother in a Memphis housing project. You're adapting that for film. Um, and then The mm-hmm. Mountaintop is probably what a lot of people people might uh, yeah. know your name from, um, which is about a chance encounter between Martin Luther King Jr. and a maid. It won the 2010 Olivier Award. Um, in all of those and so many of the other works that you've done, Black women have an integral role. They're, mm-hmm. they're centered in a lot of these stories. As we go, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the intention behind centering Black women in all mm. of the stories that you do and, and and why you think it's important to do so. Absolutely. You know, when I was in acting school, I remember we were given an assignment. The assignment was go to the library and find a, a play that has a scene for you and your scene partner's type. We were two young Black women. And I remember going to the, the Columbia Library. They know they should have had some. But anyway, I remember going to the Columbia Library and we were pulling down all of these these plays and and there were no plays that had a scene for two young black women. And I remember going to my teacher mm. and asking her, you know, do you have any suggestions? 10 seconds went by, 20 seconds went by, 40 seconds went by and she could not think of a play that had a scene for two young black women. And in that moment, I decided, well, I'm going to write those, those plays. Then I'm going to write those stories. I'm going to write a new American theater that sees me in the reflection that I know storytelling can be. And so for me, it's just really always been this mission statement to center black women, because I've, I know that we have been historically relegated to the footnotes of history. I know that we are constantly battling the Goliath of misogynoir in our in our country. And I really feel as though storytelling is a tool for humanization. And that's why Black women are so misunderstood because 
we haven't been able to be the queens and and sheroes of our own stories and and to be able to to kind of utilize the power of storytelling to create a moment of empathy for a group of people who have been dehumanized and misrepresented and ignored for mm-hmm. so long is just a, a gift to me you know i descend from slaves my mother actually used to to pick cotton like it's not that long ago like the, the cotton fields are our are still working, <laughs> you know, and th- and the fact that I have uh, a 65 year old mother whose hands pulled those cotton bowls out for, in order for her to get um, enough money for her, her, her school clothes for the year. And the fact that I, all I have to do is like, you know, raise a pen and write me and my sisters and my brothers in, into their own histories. It's my responsibility. I just feel as though your ancestors went through too much for you to be silent and for you to not use your gifts. And so for me, storytelling has been a way to be resistant and to be one of the ways in which we kind of create empathy and use storytelling as a powerful uh, megaphone for not only Black women, but Black people in general. I love that. Katori Hall, thanks so much for giving us some of your time. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Loved it. That was Katori Hall. Thanks so much for joining us. I love how she has just like incorporated, you know, what we would consider to be Ebonics or AAVE into the show. Make sure you check it out and watch P Valley on Stars right now. It's super, super, super great. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. I'm Jared Hill. I'm Travel Anderson. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of each of us and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Greater Los Angeles. Where there are children playing outside in a pool all day long next door to me. I don't know what you've <laughs> been experiencing as you're recording from home, but um, there's always children's laughter and screaming outside. Well, my upstairs neighbors, they love to move furniture at all hours of the night for some <laughs> reason. Um, so shout out to them. This show is produced by speaking into microphones, obviously. <laughs> our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We also get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And you can always keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And you can check out our show called Fanti, F-A-N-T-I, which, as we said, is a portmanteau of fan and anti, basically the things that we love but have some challenges around. New episodes of the podcast come out every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. And as Jesse might remind us, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. But we don't, so bye. Bye. (laughs) Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.